Hi, welcome to Pitt Town Church. We are so glad that you're listening to this podcast. We pray that this sermon encourages you in your walk with Jesus. If you would like more information, check out our website at www.pitttownchurch.com. Well, I'm going to keep reading God's Word. So if you grab your Bible and turn with me to Psalm 2. Reading from Psalm 2. Why do the nations rebel and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let us tear off their chains and free ourselves from their restraints. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have consecrated my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree, he said to me. You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will shatter them like pottery. So now kings, be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the Son, or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion, for his anger may ignite at any moment. All those who take refuge in him are happy. It's the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. And a special good morning to those down at Wiseman's Ferry. How are you going with memorising uh, Psalm 1? How you, has anyone learned the whole lot? Yes, some of you have. Excellent. So glad to hear. And it'll be great uh, when I get down there to actually hear some of you. I wonder if the kids have found it easier or the adults have found it easier to actually memorise all of Psalm 1. And if the rest of you uh, haven't uh, thought about actually memorising God's Word... Psalm 1 is a really good one to start with. And uh, just before I start, I've, I've got a question. It's a real question. Um, who's in charge here? I, I, who's the new broom? Who's pulling the strings? Now, as soon as you can answer that question, um, you're going to be able to either relax or you're going to have a reason not to worry um, all around the world, it's really natural to ask, what will it mean for me if so-and-so gets elected or wins a coup or um, even uh, someone who sits on a throne? Psalm 2 is all about kingship or monarchy. Who's really in charge? I'm going to read a, a paraphrase of uh, Psalm 2. It's uh, by Eugene Peterson from uh, The Message. Why the big noise nations? Why the mean plots, peoples? Earth leaders push for position. Demagogues and delegates meet for summit talks. The God deniers, the Messiah defilers. Let's get free of God. Cast loose from Messiah. Heaven-throned God breaks out laughing. At first he's amused at their presumption and then he gets good and angry. Furiously he shuts them up. Don't you know there's a king in Zion? 
A coronation banquet is spread before him on the holy summit. Let me tell you what Yahweh said next. He said, you're my son and today is your birthday. What do you want? Name it. Nations as a present, continents as a prize. You can command them all to dance for you or throw them out with tomorrow's trash. So, rebel kings, use your heads. Upstarts, judges, learn your lesson. Worship Yahweh in adoring embrace. Celebrate in trembling awe, King Messiah. Your very lives are in danger, you know. His anger is about to explode. But if you make a run for God, you won't regret it. Let's pray. Father, please help us to know who is in charge in the deepest part of who we are, where we can find our real security. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, Psalm 2 is all about kingship or monarchy. It begins uh, with talking about earthly kings and finishes with talking about God's choice as the king of kings. Well, Australians are a funny bunch when it comes to the monarchy. Uh, Back in 1999, the national referendum told us that 50% of Australians were in favour of a republic. Some of you might remember that. Well, last January, an online Ipsos poll uh, told us that 34% were now in favour of a republic, 40% were opposed to a republic, leaving 26% who didn't know what they thought. But... Apparently, many Aussies are fascinated by the royals. And I know that every time I pass through the checkout at Coles or Woolies, I can't help but see the cover of the Australian Women's Weekly magazine. There's a trend, you know, and it's been going on since 1933. Every hatch, match and dispatch of the royals has been covered in glorious colour photos. Someone's done the research. The royals sell magazines. And for some reason, they're interesting, but they're not scary. I don't think about how the next king or queen of the British Commonwealth is really going to change anything for me. Now, not like if I was in the time and in the place of the kings and queens in the Bible. They could do major damage. For their subjects, they had scary power. Now, what time are we really talking about in Psalm 2? When Peter and John, 2,000 years ago, they were praying in Acts chapter 4, verse 25, they actually identified King David as the writer of Psalm 2. And they quote verses 1 and 2, which means the setting of Psalm 2 is around 1,000 B.C., Israel is settling in Canaan, surrounded by enemies. And it is into that scene that uh, David, the man of God, was chosen to be king of Israel. And he's surrounded by the nations led by rulers who shared in a conspiracy. Uh, Psalm 2 verse 1, Why do the nations rebel and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire against, uh, together against the Lord and his anointed one. 
Let us tear off their chains and free ourselves from their restraints. Now, if you were under the level of a king, you would not want to upset the king. If the king was evil and you wanted to do good things, humanly speaking, you would have a reason to be afraid. But if Psalm 1, remember two weeks ago, taught us not to be envious of the wicked because we know of their ultimate destiny, Psalm 2 teaches us not to fear the wicked. Now that's easier said than done, isn't it? These rulers, these kings in verses 1 to 3, they saw Israel as a threat. And it's easy to assume that they were threatened when a new uh, nation came on the scene, uh, but God actually uncovers the spiritual motivation for their rebelling against uh, Israel as well. Israel was a threat to their way of life. And their way of life settled around a particular god or a group of gods and they, they had an extra personal motivation against uh, Israel because many of those kings actually believed that they were gods themselves. Now, here comes a nation that says that there's only one god and it's not the human king. And um, they, they find that now every other, they're told that every other contender for the role of God was a fake. And so these foreign kings around Israel, they plot and they conspire together to wipe out Israel, to wipe out the very idea of Israel's God, the Lord, Yahweh. And to do that, <clears throat> they would have to get rid of the Lord's anointed, the anointed one, in Hebrew, Messiah. So the picture of the anointed one was that the man would be declared king and they would be anointed in a particular ceremony. Psalm 2 actually belongs to a group of um, 11 other psalms that are called the royal psalms. And nine of these psalms actually uses this word anointed one. Um, so it's a common theme, the idea of royalty and being anointed. And two of them actually use a verb to anoint or to make a king. Anointing involved pouring oil over the, uh, the new king's head as a sign of being officially chosen. And in verse 2, we have the anointing done with all the authority of God himself. God is the one who is doing the anointing. But God says the kings of these surrounding nations, they reject God's choice. And in doing that, they are fighting against God himself. Uh, when the apostle Peter and John used these verses in their prayer, they went on and they said, <clears throat> this is in <clears throat> pardon me, Acts chapter 4, verse 27, For in fact, in this city, that is in Jerusalem, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. You see, Peter and John knew that the anointed one is Jesus. And the rulers of the nations, they apply to Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles, in their case, the Romans, and most surprising of all, the people of Israel themselves. They're uh, joined together in those who conspire against the Lord and his anointed. 
the Lord Jesus. The world saw these leaders as the movers and the shakers. They saw them and they saw themselves in the same way. They prided themselves in being experts in strategy, in planning. But how does God see them? They're just rebels in God's eyes. And they're rebels with a lot of rebellious plans. In verse uh, 1, these rulers are plotting. Now that word plot is the same Hebrew word that was used back in Psalm 1 verse 2 to talk about meditating. It means to think deeply, to chew over some idea a lot. And in Psalm 1, the blessed, happy, forever person meditates on God's word. But here, in Psalm 2, the rebels against God, those who will be unhappy forever, are using their intelligence and their energy to meditate on how to destroy God's chosen king. But verses 1 to 3 basically say, why do they bother? They've, they're already on the losing side. Look at God's response. God looks at their plans and what happens in verse 4. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them and then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. God laughs and it's, it's not a merry laugh. It's a scornful, it's an angry laugh. His enemies hate God so much, but they don't have the ability to stop God's plans. As a matter of fact, every plan to squash God's agenda only ends up working towards supporting God's agenda. It's like uh, Joseph in the Old Testament. Uh, he, um, he told his brothers after they had sold him into slavery and he went to Egypt and he became the second most important person in Egypt, he says to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. For what it's doing right now is for the salvation of many. That's in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, one of my favourite verses. These rebel kings, God's enemies, are chihuahuas thinking that they're Dobermans. The kings are children playing superheroes unaware that they're actually playing the bad guys, destined to lose. The kings would be like me playing chess against a grandmaster and thinking that I've got a chance to win or even get a draw. God's not against planning, but he is against planning that is against his revealed will. The dumbest thing that anyone can do is make plans and leave God out. The happy forever person, the blessed person, saturates his plans with prayer and pouring over God's word for insights into the godly and wise way to go ahead. But when the kings and the rulers conspire against God, it makes him laugh. But it also leads to something else. Verse 6, I have consecrated my king on Zion, my holy mountain. And now the person speaking in verse 7 is the Messiah himself. Verse 7, I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, 
You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will shatter them like pottery. Now, in one sense, you can see David is being encouraged that God is about to do something marvellous. David is really the first great king of a united Israel. And the Old Testament records that David was actually anointed three times on three different occasions. In one real sense, King David was a mini-Messiah. He had been anointed like all the Davidic kings after him, but David could never be the ultimate Messiah because when you read his story, you can't help but feel very disappointed with him. He had a history of adultery and murder and bad parenting. He was a sinner. But then Jesus came. He came as an anointed Israelite king and he could be called the son of God in a way that David could not. David was not the son of God, but Jesus is. He is the son who the father in heaven said he was well pleased with. David frequently doesn't act like his heavenly father, but Jesus always behaved like his heavenly father. He's the actual embodiment of like father, like son. And although David had many military successes, his conquests were incomplete in his lifetime. But the Messiah's conquest would be global. Look at verse 8. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron and you will shatter them like pottery. This description is picked up in the last book of the Bible in Revelation chapter 2 when Jesus himself says, The one who is victorious and keeps my works to the end, I will give him authority over the nations. And he will shepherd them with an iron scepter. He will shatter them like pottery, just as I have received this from my father. Psalm 2 throws out a challenge for those who are in power to change their ways. Look at verse 10. So now, kings, be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the Son or he will be angry with you and will perish in your rebellion for his anger may ignite at any moment. Now, in Psalm 1, we are told that the truly blessed person, the happy forever person, is the one who delights in and meditates on the word of the Lord. In Psalm 2, the same message goes out to the world's leaders. An economics degree won't save them. A huge army won't save them. MI6 or a team of commandos led by Chuck Norris won't save them. God's word is where they find the words of life. Running away from God's Messiah, the Lord, won't save them. But running to the Messiah, 
that will save them. That line, uh, pay homage to the sun, uh, you might have a, 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 an older version and uh, you might recognise it in the uh, translation, um, kiss the sun. Uh, it's, it's actually more literal and it's actually more evocative as well, isn't it? The idea of kissing the sun. When you were brought before an ancient Near Eastern monarch, the almost universal sign of humility or homage was to kiss their feet. And if you, if you knew what was good for you. And behind that action, literally kissing someone's feet did not necessarily mean that you respected them. In many cases, I'm sure it was because they actually feared them. It was a matter of survival. I wonder how many of those king's servants kissed the king's feet out of fear rather than love. Well, King David actually knew that you can't fool God. He learned the hard way a number of times. This psalm should be a warning that no one will ever be able to pretend that they really love and obey Jesus when they finally meet him. There's a really beautiful section in the New Testament in uh, Luke chapter 7, starting at verse 36. Jesus is invited to a meal. Then one of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house and she brought an alabaster jar of fragrant oil and stood behind him at his feet weeping and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with the hair of her head, kissing them and anointing them with the fragrant oil. Can you imagine that scene? She's crying and she's kissing his feet and... They didn't have closed shoes on those days. Jesus would have been wearing sandals. He would have been walking around outside. Can you imagine the condition of those feet that she was kissing? And the Pharisee who had invited him saw this and he said to himself, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She's a sinner. Uh, he actually mess, missed the main point, didn't he? That woman had more insight into who Jesus was than the Pharisee. That woman had found the safest place to be as a sinner, as a rebel against God. She had been identified, identified by her culture as a sinner and she comes to Jesus, the holiest of men, and she comes to his feet, kissing them. Psalm 2 finishes where Psalm 1 started by telling who the blessed or happy forever person is. Verse 12, all those who take refuge in him are happy. Who are the unhappiest people? The rulers who plan against God. Who are the happiest people? It's the refugees the ones who see themselves as refugees and they run to Jesus. They take refuge in Jesus. All those who take refuge in him are happy. Some of you are aware of the comedian Arne Doe and some of you may have read his autobiography, uh, The Happiest Refugee. 
He tells this story of coming to Australia when he was two and a half years old. He doesn't remember much of it, but he's been told again and again the story. 38 refugees on a nine and a half metre boat from Vietnam. His family escaped a re-education camp in um, Vietnam after the uh, Vietnam War uh, because his father had actually helped some the Aussies. And for five days on this boat, they experienced uh, pirates twice. Um, they experienced hunger and thirst, dehydration and disease. And he said, quote, nothing could quench their desire, those people who are on the boat, to make a better life in the country they dreamed about. He wrote, my extended family pooled all of their money, called in the favours with friends and relatives and sold everything they ever had, every possession, just to buy a boat. And he talked about how his mum uh, had told him to make the most of this new opportunity in this lucky land and to take these opportunities and give back something uh, to their new country. And uh, Arne found happiness in realising what he had been saved from and appreciating what he had been given. Friends, if you have run to Jesus, you are a refugee and you are one of the happiest people in the world. If we are following God's anointed one, the Lord Jesus, we know what we've been saved from. And as we explore God's word more and more, we learn what we have been saved for, to live for the Lord Jesus. If I can uh, finish with a, a quote from uh, Australia's best-known theologian, Jesus is the king, ruler over everything. Jesus is the Lord. He's the one you can't ignore. Jesus is the king. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for revealing your son, Jesus, as the true king. Forgive us for when we haven't lived in the light of that truth. Thank you for the comfort that that truth brings us day by day as we put Jesus first in all of our plans. In Jesus' name, amen.